0: And are you going to the, are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant um, taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I, am, I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Martha said to him, "I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day." Jesus said to her, "I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he died, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you, Do you believe this?" She said to him, "Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world." When he's, When she said had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private. it was a cave, and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will, be a, there will be an older, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lift up, lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the words God's word.
1: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we're thankful for the Gospel of John, um, and one of the reasons is because it's the only place that we have this story. We're thankful for the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. There is not a single person in here who has been touched by death, uh, who has been experienced the death of a loved one. Um, people today might be coming in here with, A memory of death, uh, the experience of it, the fear of it, uh, maybe a sick family member that maybe themselves uh, are sick, maybe anxiety, um, an accident, all kinds of things. And the reason that we are so scared of death is because it's final. And so we are thankful for this story, this miraculous story of death, not being final, of someone dying and then being brought to life. Um, I confess, though, some, it, it almost uh, sits in my heart in the place of a myth um, because it just seems so wild. Um, I've never been to a funeral where the person became alive again, uh, where I've ever seen them again and enjoyed their presence And so we ask for faith uh, this morning to believe um, in this story, the truth of this story, but more than that, to believe in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I am not normally a big sermon title person. Like, usually it's sort of like an afterthought, usually even podcasts, like I barely— Mike will. Poor Mike. I make him sort of just do a title, like I don't because I just don't care. I don't. I don't feel like it's a lot of um, investment. Um, But this week, it really leapt off the page as one of the first things in my preparation or before writing, before doing much um, thinking about it. Um, The title for this sermon uh, is "The Cost of Glory." What is the cost of glory? The cost of witnessing glory experiencing it advancing glory i think that is something john chapter 11 offers us more than anything we've seen jesus do or say thus far in the book of john Uh, we've seen a lot of god's glory in the signs jesus has performed in the first half of john but we haven't yet considered explicitly the cost of that glory what did it cost to see it to witness it uh, to uh, advance it and in john chapter 11 we have the seventh sign. It's the climactic sign of Jesus' ministry. A uh, Seven is a significant number in Hebrew tradition. It symbolizes completeness and perfection. And so when John was writing the book of John, Jesus performed many signs, uh, too many to write down. And so the apostle John decided to choose seven signs because seven is the perfect number. Uh, and there are lots of sevens throughout the book of John. Uh, but that makes this sign being the seventh extra important. Because this is the sign that completes and perfects the others. It completes Jesus' public ministry. Uh, So far, we have seen Jesus turn water into wine. We've seen him clear clear the temple, heal the official's son, heal a crippled man, feed the 5,000, heal a man born blind. Uh, But never has Jesus done anything like this when he raises a person from the dead. And not only is it an amazing miracle all on its own, it points forward to Jesus' most consequential miracle, right? When he himself is raised from the dead um, on behalf of all of us. But John 11 does more than just tell that story. Um, It slows way down and gives us um, the cost of that accomplishment. This is a very personal story. It's an emotional chapter. Everyone weeps. Jesus weeps in this chapter. Uh, When we are reading through the Gospels, it's really easy to think of Jesus' ministry as just one big celebrity magic show, right? With this like effortless healings, like Oprah style, where it's like you get a healing, and you get a healing, and you get a healing, right? Um, And sometimes it is effortless, um, sort of, like when the woman healed in Mark 5, it, she's healed by just touching Jesus' clothes. Do you remember that story, Mark 5, 28? She'd been sick, I think, for 18 years, um, but in Mark 5, she says, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. That seems like magic, doesn't it? It feels effortless. But if you remember how Jesus re- responded In verse 30, Jesus, it's a big crowd, he's surrounded by people. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? It turns out the miracle wasn't effortless. Power left Jesus. The miracle affected him, it cost him something. And looking back at John chapter 11, we see that cost on Jesus, um, but it not only highlights the cost of glory for Jesus, we also see the cost of glory for others. Uh, We get a close look at the disciples, Mary, Martha, and of course in the background there is dead Lazarus. And that's important for us to notice because Jesus told all would-be followers to count the cost before following him before signing up to follow jesus and all these characters these main characters are already followers of jesus in luke 14 jesus famously says if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes and even his own life he cannot be my disciple Uh, when we hear stories of christian saints across history doing glorious things in the name of christ there's so many invisible costs that they have paid that we don't see, we often don't consider how their story started, uh, when the when they first left behind their families, their homes, their security, when they took that narrow road. But Jesus tells people they must count that cost. Jesus continues, "Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." And so what is the cost of discipleship? What is the cost of a miracle? What is the cost of glory? It's an important question, and that's the question that really jumped out for me this week from the text, especially when I got to verse 4. So John 11, one, backing up to the beginning, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. And so verse 3, The sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is sick is ill but when Jesus heard it he said this illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of god so that the son of god may be glorified through it john 11 is about god's glory that's why jesus raised lazarus from the dead and it is glorious it's hard to it's hard to picture it's hard to imagine but christians believe jesus literally raised from the dead a man who had died 4 days before People had watched him die, people had said their goodbyes, they'd had a funeral, they'd buried him and sealed his tomb, Martha said his body was beginning to smell, death had won, but then Jesus in verse 43 cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus come out, and the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus says to them, unbind him and let him go. Try to imagine being in the crowd watching this. Uh, We've all lost loved ones. We've all been to funerals. We've been to gravesides. No one walks after being dead for four days. This is glorious. It's frightening even. I imagine that there was some fear in the crowd when they saw this happen. Um, Because it's not like, you know, I thought he was dead, but he's actually alive. No, he was 100% dead. And now he's alive. And you'd be a little scared of Jesus. The words John uses about Jesus's emotions, verse 33 and 38, he says, Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In the Greek, those words have a trembling quality to them and not a fearful trembling, but more like an angry trembling. There's an intensity to Jesus. He's overcome with emotion, sadness for his friends, surely he weeps, but anger at death. And so Jesus yells at Lazarus, Lazarus, come out, and he does. And people are looking at Lazarus, they're looking at Jesus. Jesus has to tell the people to unwrap him, right? Because they're all stunned. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? He is God. Deuteronomy 32 was ringing in their ears. Verse 39, see now that I even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. God said that in Deuteronomy, and then Jesus did it in John 11. Jesus was exactly right when he said at the very beginning of chapter 11, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But again, the thing that stood out to me this week was Jesus said that in verse 4, Lazarus was raised from the dead in verse 44, and there's a lot of time between verse 4 and verse 44. Time is a very important feature in how John writes this story. Literally, in the text, there's all kinds of references to units of time. So Jesus waits two days, Lazarus is dead four days. Jesus references 12 hours in the day to the disciples. Martha talks about Lazarus' resurrection on the last day. Time looms over, chapter 11. And all that time makes room for a lot of hardship, a lot of sadness. This is an emotional story. There is a lot of pain here. There is a lot of fear, doubts, cynicism from Thomas, questioning, sadness, hurt, and confusion. And those feelings often come up when we have a lot of time, when we're waiting. Things bubble up for us. There's a lot of time between verse 4 and verse 44. The story might end gloriously. It's a good news story, but I can't help but wonder if Martha and Mary in particular thought the glory was worth it in the end. Of course, it was totally worth it to have their brother back. They didn't want Lazarus to stay dead. But after the fact... Do any of you wonder whether they still wish that Jesus had just come sooner? Whether there wasn't some pain lingering from them, mistrust perhaps? I'm curious, what do you think? How did Mary and Martha feel? How do you feel that their brother's life and their own emotions and hearts were used by God, by Jesus for his own glory, without God asking them what they thought about it? When Mary and Martha were counting the cost of following Jesus, they didn't know John chapter 11 was going to come, and that's how following Jesus is. He asks us to count the costs and to decide to build a building, but all things come up, and so we don't actually know what the cost is. They didn't know following Jesus meant this, but they actually maybe thought it meant the opposite, didn't they? That's why they sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, because they thought following Jesus, it might mean a lot of hard things, but at least it would mean that they had a healer them. Why didn't Jesus just heal Lazarus before he died? All of us, I'm sure, can relate to this question, to this feeling. If you're a Christian, you've told yourself in difficult times the very biblical truth that all things, even terrible things, work together for God's glory eventually. We trust that. And God's glory is what we want, or what we should want. You've told yourself that, perhaps you've been told by others that, and sometimes that's encouraging, oftentimes not so much. You don't want to hear that. But no matter, because the truth is you don't have a choice. God's going to do what he's going to do. You pray about it, you ask for healing, in obedience, but Jesus doesn't come in time. Martha confesses to Jesus in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That statement of faith from Martha is so admirable, but it also stings a bit. Because it means Martha knows Jesus could have asked God for Lazarus' healing, but he didn't. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I'm still saying that to you. I just imagine the like tenor of her voice, the conviction in her voice, but also the pain and difficulty. Martha knows when Jesus shows up four days too late, it wasn't an accident. Jesus Jesus wasn't rushing to be by her side, but he got stalled. She also knows Lazarus' death isn't because she didn't have enough faith. She believes And she perhaps has seen Jesus perform other miracles where Jesus says explicitly, your faith has made you well, but Martha's faith didn't make her well. Lazarus didn't die because she didn't believe. Lazarus didn't die because Jesus isn't powerful enough. Lazarus died because Jesus let him die. Their brother's death was the cost of Jesus' glory. You just think about the journey they've been on. These are Jesus's, some of his closest friends that we know of. And first, their brother gets sick. At some point, they think to themselves, this is serious, nothing is working, we need Jesus. And so they send a very loaded message to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And since the messenger surely came right back, but then Jesus doesn't come back with him, they're wondering, they wait Lazarus dies, they mourn, they bury their brother all without Jesus. Both sisters say the same thing to Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's important when a writer chooses to say the exact same sentence twice. So John wants us to hear that. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's the very first thing they say to Jesus. Mary can't say it without collapsing at his feet. The sisters paid for God's glory with pain. Jesus was right. God would be glorified. The Son of God was glorified. Jesus was glorified in the raising of Lazarus, but not without Martha and Mary experiencing perhaps the worst week of their life thus far and experiencing it all without Jesus because he intentionally delayed his arrival. And it's not just Mary and Martha. Uh, Mary and Martha are the central figures, of course, but the disciples also pay a cost. We see them wrestle with this reality, verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? The disciples had to follow Jesus into danger. The ticket price for them to witness God's glory might be their own death. They risked their lives to see this miracle and they would continue to risk their lives. Thomas is not wrong in verse 16 when he says, let us also go that we may die with him. Uh, Most scholars sort of read a little cynicism and a little sarcasm in there, Uh, but he's right. Christian tradition holds that Thomas the disciple was martyred as a missionary to India. Thomas will die for the glory of God. He, like Lazarus, will pay for his resurrection with death. And so what have we seen about the cost of glory? Witnessing God's glory requires waiting for Jesus to show up. It also requires that we follow Jesus into uncertainty, potentially enduring risk and discomfort, danger and fear. The cost of God's glory for us involves both trusting Jesus and obeying Jesus. The reality is that witnessing and experiencing and furthering Christ's glory in this life and the next costs everyone something, and you don't know how it's going to go down. And so the question that I have, um, and maybe it betrays uh, things going on in, in my life and heart, when I read this story is, man, how is this not selfish of Jesus? to put people through so much hardship for his own glory. Because Jesus is clearly in control of the whole thing. He is completely in control. He knows what he's doing. How can Jesus put Mary and Martha through this, people who are already committed to him? How can God put any of his children through such pain when he knows and we know that if only God would come sooner, this hardship, that tragedy would not have happened. When we say that God uses all things for his own glory, how can we say it without feeling used ourselves? Well, the story tells us how, and it shows us too. At the beginning of the story, verse 5 and verse 6 make for an interesting pair. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. How does that make any sense, right? Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he didn't come. That's why he didn't come. Not Jesus loved them, but still he didn't come. Not even so, he didn't come. You know, Jesus has boundaries, guys, priorities. He's got a job to do. Sorry, Martha and Mary. Sorry, disciples. He loves you, but that's not what verse 5 and 6 tell us. Everything Jesus does in chapter 11 and throughout the entire book of John and throughout all of human history is for them. It is for us. It all falls under the banner of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why was he four days late? Because he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Why did he let Lazarus die? Because he loved them. The miracle was not for Jesus. The glory was not for Jesus. It was his glory. He was glorified. He was the one glorified. But it's all for them. Jesus didn't need more proof of who he was. He didn't need more faith. They did. He says that repeatedly in the story. That's not something we're reading into it. Wishfully, hopefully, he says it himself, John eleven fourteen 14, to his disciples. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. John eleven forty one. 41, at the end, when Jesus prays, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he has a crowd around him. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Even Martha, with such strong faith in Jesus, You know, Martha always gets a bad rap, but you should remember John 11 whenever you're talking about like the Mary and Martha thing, like remember John 11. She's a good lady. Um, Martha says to Jesus bravely, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But Jesus is still after a certain kind of faith from her a layer of faith. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? The entire aim of Jesus' ministry is that people would believe, and in believing, find life. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John six forty for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John six forty seven. truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And now in verse 25 of 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So the resurrection is not some impersonal, far-off event. The resurrection is here in Jesus. Jesus is himself the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this, Mary? Do you believe this, disciples? Do you believe this, friends? Jesus, even now, while he sits at the right hand of the Father, hearing our prayers, he is orchestrating all of human history, all of our history, so that we might know that in Jesus and Jesus alone is resurrection life. And in that ministry, in that love, sometimes he hears your prayers and intervenes, and sometimes he stands by and he lets tragedy happen. Why? Because he loves you. He wants to save you, and salvation comes by grace through faith, through believing He's willing to do anything that you might believe and continue believing, even at great cost to you, which is real, but also even at great cost to himself. Uh, We've yet to talk about the price Jesus pays for raising Lazarus from the dead. It's not just Mary and Martha who are made to suffer for the glory of God and Lazarus' resurrection. Jesus clearly suffers in John 11 in a way that we rarely get to see in the Gospels outside of the cross and resurrection. Jesus is suffering here. It's one of the more emotional scenes in all the Gospels. And he didn't have to suffer in this way. He chose to because he loved them. You know, you could go back to verse 5 and 6 and you know, it says he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days. I wonder if there was, a, there was a part of Jesus that wanted to go then, but didn't. If it was all about him and his own feelings and sparing himself from suffering, he would have dropped everything and gone right there. But because he loved them, he waited and walk through tons of pain himself, friend, Jesus is not unaware of the pain his choices put you through. He is not unaware of the cost you are paying for his sovereign choices. He knows your tears. He knows your fear. He knows your doubts. He knows your suffering. When he hears your prayers and he doesn't answer, he knows the cost. He knows the cost of glory, and that's because he pays it too. This is one of the great consolations of the incarnation. When God the Son took on flesh in order that he might defeat suffering and death by taking it on completely and perfectly. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That's clearly on display in John 11. Jesus is right in the mix of all the emotions and feelings and turmoil and difficulty. And the reality is, apart from the incarnation, it was impossible for God to know pain as we know pain. Uh, God was and is impassable. He's impermeable to loss and suffering. Um, God is always merciful, of course. He was merciful before the incarnation, but his mercy was a disposition, not an experience. His mercy is his divine, unchanging goodness coming into contact with sinners. But when God the Son became man in Jesus Christ, that mercy became an experience too. Donald McLeod writes, God the Son, through Jesus, experiences life in a human body and in a human soul. He experiences human pain and human temptations. He suffers poverty and loneliness and humiliation. He tastes death. Before and apart from the incarnation, God knew such things by observation. But observation, even when it is that of omniscience, falls short of personal experience. That is what the incarnation made possible for God, real personal experience of being human. And Jesus' humanity is on full display in this story. Jesus suffers the doubts of the disciples. Jesus suffers the disappointment from Martha. He suffers the weeping of Mary at his feet. He suffers the accusations of the crowd who accuse him. Man, if he could heal a man born blind, why couldn't he have healed Lazarus' sickness? And he suffers the loss of his friend, Lazarus. But even that's actually not the main encouragement from John 11. God the Son became man to do more than just suffer with us. He came to suffer for us. And Jesus here is said to be in deep distress, trembling anger, specifically when he sees the tomb. Why is he so worked up about it? Because at the beginning of the story, he already knows that Lazarus is not going to stay dead. He comforts his disciples. He told the disciples, Lazarus is only sleeping, and he must go wake him up. But standing outside that tomb, Jesus still is greatly troubled. Why? Because in that tomb, which John notes is a cave with a stone rolled in front of it, Jesus sees his own tomb. The disciples were right. By going to Jerusalem, by going to perform this miracle, Jesus was exchanging Lazarus' life for his own life. Jesus, like Lazarus, would die. That's why he came. Only Jesus didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve to suffer. He chose it. Every human being dies, but not because death is natural, but because of sin. Every human being dies. We die because we have sinned against God, the author and sustainer of life. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And so before Jesus can come and dispense life, give eternal life he first has to take care of death by paying the cost of sin his death on the cross is the real cost of glory all these miracles all these signs are jesus going into debt that he will eventually pay it's a steep price but it's a price he's willing to pay not just for his own future glory but for our glory too, that we might join him in his resurrection and live forever. It's because God in Christ paid this awesome price that the cost of glory to us is vastly reduced. And so Mary and Martha, the disciples, Lazarus, we all are made to pay something in the desire to see the glory of God, to be his disciples, to experience that glory These characters, indeed all of them, will die in Christ, for Christ, many of them as martyrs, but after the cross, death is forever changed. The cost of death is reduced tremendously. Simon Gathercole writes, there is an asymmetry, a disparity between the kind of death that Christ died on the cross and the death that believers die at the end of their lives, and the death of Lazarus is a foretaste of that. All of the men and women in John 11 died, Lazarus for a second time. He got to die a second time. It's fun for him. Um, But um, we can be confident that they would say to us now, with Paul, Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians four t- four seventeen. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. They died; many of them died as martyrs, executed for following Jesus. But they're not really dead. Like Lazarus, they're only sleeping. They're sleeping. And what is the harm in sleeping? later in the new testament paul will pick up this distinction between dying and sleeping when talking about believers and so whenever paul talks about jesus death on the cross um, even though jesus was like lazarus like resurrected a few days later right paul always emphasizes that jesus died he uses the strongest words jesus was dead his heart stopped beating his brain stopped firing his body began to decay jesus did not fall asleep for our sins he died for our sins He did not pass away. There's no euphemism for Jesus' death on the cross. But when Paul talks about believers dying, and when he uses the strongest words, he really uses them abstractly, metaphorically, so that believers have died to sin. In obedience, we die daily. We have been crucified with Christ. This death, the strongest death, is the death of the old self so that we now, even today, have life with the risen Christ in the new. We die when we first believe. That's the real death of the Christian. It's why the gospels resisted by so many, because it requires a death to self. But that's also why Jesus can say in the present sense, 524, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, has now eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He will not come into judgment but has already passed from death to life. And so Lazarus, Mary, Martha, Paul, they have already passed from death to life in this scene. And now so more. And so having already died in the deepest, truest sense, Paul then almost exclusively talks about believers' physical death as just sleeping. That's the word that he uses when believers pass away. They sleep. They go to sleep. When the Thessalonians are worried that believers who die before Christ returns will miss out on the resurrection, Paul says, uh, chapter 4, verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In 1 Corinthians 15, defending the resurrection, Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And so one author writes, Paul's distinction between falling asleep in Christ and perishing signals that he holds death in two different categories. There is perishing, where death is the only end, and then there is sleep, a death that anticipates waking up, resurrection. According to Paul, when believers die, they never actually die. They simply fall asleep for a time. They will awaken when the light of the world comes to stir them from their slumber. That's a sweet, sweet sentence. Because Christ died on the cross, and because we in faith have already been crucified with him, the worst that can happen to those who trust in Christ is a long sleep. In this life, Yes, God as our Lord and King in his sovereign love for us often asks us to hand over our lives for his glory, to count the cost, to pay it, to walk faithfully in the light in the 12 hours of day that is, our li- that is our short lives while we are still awake. And he asks us to do this in order that our faith might be perfected and complete and also an investment in the faith of others who don't know Jesus yet, that they might see Christ's life and join us And that discipleship is definitely work. It's costly work at times. It's heavy work. The cost of discipleship is real for Mary and Martha and Lazarus being wrapped up in the story of Jesus, story and ministry of Jesus. Their neighbors didn't have to go through this week. Mary and Martha and Lazarus did. The cost of resurrection is real for Jesus mostly, but for us too. But one day we will lay our heads to sleep for the last time. And then we'll wake up, we won't wake up, until we hear the beautiful sound of Jesus' voice standing outside the tomb, saying, Brother, sister, friend, beloved saint, stand up. Come out, and it will all have been worth it. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this story. We're thankful for your fierce love for us. A love which would be committed to our eternal good. And so not unwilling to ask hard things from us. A lesser love, a love which um, avoided discomfort and conflict, wouldn't do this. Um, but you love us fiercely. You love us wisely. You love us completely. And you're willing to endure our doubts and frustrations and wrestling and anger and sadness because you want to share with us that future resurrection father would we be people who believe in the end that we would all be folks who live forever who fall asleep and then wake up to the sound of your voice to the light of the morning sun But will we also be people, as we like wrestle and pay that cost together now, who wrestle together and wrestle with you and are willing to be like the disciples and Martha and Mary and talk with you and ask you and accuse you even that if you had been here, this bad thing wouldn't have happened. You can receive that um, and you can point us forward as you ask us If we believe, help us to say, yes, Lord, I do believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God sent to save the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.